It's a city street. It's in London. And all the person has is a camera and a microphone. And they have one question. And they're going to ask everybody they can this simple question. Who do you think is Jesus? And as you can imagine, there are a variety of categories of responses. Um. Um. Uh. Um. I don't know. Uh. Uh. Whoa. God, what a question. He was born on Christmas Day. Yeah. He's probably a guy who was quite groovy like Gandhi many, many years ago and did some carpentry and was probably quite a nice bloke. Did you sound up this film? I think that uh, he's a man with uh, long hair and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's got some. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. I don't know. I, I've never like seen him or anything like this and I don't really believe in him. I think Jesus is... Fictionary. I think Jesus is probably a guy that's made up to try and keep people in line. To be honest, he's part of the biggest con ever to be associated with mankind. I think that Jesus is like something that people have in their imagination and that they use to kind of comfort themselves in sort of difficult situations, maybe. I think a person called Jesus existed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's a little bit crazy. He's important. Yeah. But that's for all young people like us, uh, yes. I don't know. He's important because Jesus. No. <laughs> like my best friend, for her, like, kind of Jesus is a big factor in her life and like her making decisions. There's like so many different religions, you don't really know what to believe and nothing's wrong, but it's like, is Jesus real? Because there's so many different things you can believe in. Who is Jesus? Uh... Walk through Asheville, you're going to get the same responses. Walk through any cosmopolitan place. You're going to hear a variety, a whole slew of categories from historical figure to visionary to sage to a fanciful person that's made up that potentially could be the greatest con in human history. The one voice in particular that I wanted to highlight is that uh, young woman who, who says, you know, there's so many options out there, right? And he's one of many, and you kind of don't know what to believe, in which case... In a, in a situation like that, in a context like that, it, it's almost like you're having to choose through a series of shampoos. <laughs> um, and you realize that you maybe get recommendations for one or the other, but in the end, it's kind of like, I don't know. And that's why you get bumper stickers like this. They say, this is kind of our only option. Um, that given how you, you really can't discern and you really shouldn't, because it would be arrogant to think so that one is preferable to another, then the only option you have is just to accord a, a kind of baseline um, equitable respect for everyone. And, you know, if Monday you want to do Buddhism and Tuesday you want to do Sikhism and Wednesday you want to do Hinduism and Thursday you want to do Charles Darwin and then, you know, you get to Saturday, uh, you can do Judaism and then Sunday, well, my, you know, it's the cross, why not? You know, there's your choices. And that's what you've got to feel. And, and in a scenario like that... Um, you may have respect for one tradition, but uh, the idea of making yourself entirely vulnerable and, and to try to take deep refuge in anyone, let alone worship, like which, what we've been doing for the last 20 minutes, that kind of feels like, I don't, I don't know if I could really do that reasonably. C.S. Lewis, in one of his chapters in Mere Christianity, began this way. He said this, I have been asked to tell you what Christians believe, and I'm going to begin by telling you that the one thing that Christians do not need to believe, if you're a Christian, 
you don't have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. But if you're a Christian, you're free to think that all those religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of truth. What C.S. Lewis is doing right there is he'll, he'll see the bumper sticker that says coexist, and he'll nod his head. Absolutely. Respect, appreciation, acknowledgement that there is something that is embedded in the core of each of those traditions that has a, re- a measure of truth to it, and one need not fear, much less deny, that there is truth there. And yet, at the same time, C.S. Lewis is saying, it is not mutually exclusive to have a great respect, to coexist, but also to say, fall on your knees before the Lord, Jesus. That those two things can coexist at the same time. We have been for a few weeks and will for another few weeks more be listening to the life of Elijah. Of all people, why? Because he is subtly but consistently incorporated into the life and ministry of Jesus, or at least in the narrative of Jesus' life, but not just simply as a set piece, as sort of a, oh, isn't that pretty, or a nice decoration. It's, if, if anything, it's to help us understand who Jesus is in his ministry more so, and therefore we want to understand Jesus better by understanding Elijah. And where we're going to pick up in our understanding of Elijah this week is really on the, right on the heels of, of, of an exchange that he had with a, with a widow of a Gentile community that's not even in a member of the nation of Israel. And we're going to pick up where we left off there, and, and that encounter will be remarkable. But my argument to you is that the author of 1 Kings, who compiled this narrative of Elijah's life, the moment is not simply to tell you what happened between Elijah and this widow and her son. It's actually trying to make a bigger point. And that bigger point is, why would you find your faithfulness and worship in Yahweh? Why this Lord? Why this Lord as opposed to others? Why pick him? Why would Elijah be named, literally, Yahweh is Lord? And in this moment, it is not an opportunity to discredit another option, so much it is to make a case for why this Lord. And so we're going to learn three things, I think. I sense three things in this passage that something tells us about Yahweh that answers the question, why this Lord? And it's, it's three characteristics. I'll give you a preview. One, sympathetic. Two, responsive. Three, undaunted. Kids, undaunted just means unafraid. I ain't scared. That's undaunted. Don't worry, we'll get to that. Sympathetic, responsive, undaunted. To what and all that? Oh, yeah, that's why you're here. We're in 1 Kings, we're in chapter 17, and Anne Keezer, from a continent away, is going to read you the passage. So would you stand and give your attention to Anne as we hear from this passage? Our central text for today is found in 1 Kings 17, verses 17 to 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, 
O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, I pray for Anne. I pray that she would be of good courage even in this hour. You would strengthen her for what you've given to her, and that you would bear fruit through her for all that you do in Uganda and wherever else she gives herself and her life in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, you may remember, it's been seven days, I don't think I remembered anything from seven days ago, part one of this exchange between Elijah and this widow. This is part two, but in part one, if you weren't here, Elijah is dispatched in the middle of a famine and a drought that has beset Israel that Elijah said would happen to King Ahab at the time. He has been dispatched to outside of the land, to the north-northwest, to Phoenicia, to meet a widow, a widow of Zarephath, who's a member, a community of the Sidonians, from where we get Jezebel. All this background story, right? He is there. He is in need of food. He has been sent there to receive from her, but at the same time, she's in a desperate situation too. And she has no faith in who Yahweh is. She knows what her background is. She knows what Elijah's background is. She has no faith in that, but by the end of that first part, which we considered last week, she has another reason to believe that perhaps Yahweh is more than what she bargained for. She is provided for in the midst of her emptiness, in the midst of her lack, and she comes to discover that perhaps he is worthy of a kind of attention and affirmation that she might trust. That's part one. And then, of whatever length of time, a few moments later, between part one, part two, here in this moment, Whatever encouragement she might have found in week before, now everything falls apart. The, what was encouraging has now become tragic because now her son has grown ill and now he is lifeless and breathless. And she is understandably distraught. And you hear in her words what any mother whose child has just died would say knowing something about Yahweh when she says in verse 18, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring to my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? It's this remarkable turnabout in her. Last week, she has been provided amply for and miraculously for. She has first-hand experience. When Elijah makes her a promise, the, the jug of oil you have will never run out, the flour you'll never run out, you will continue to eat even in the midst of a drought that leads to a famine. And sure enough, that promise is fulfilled. She has first-hand experience that he is able, and then right in a heartbeat, everything changes. She forgets everything. And I've used this analogy before. You know, uh, children, 
to a certain point, they have this thing called object permanence. Uh, they see a ball, it's there. And then the ball goes behind the couch and then they, just, they think to themselves, that thing no longer exists. They don't think to look behind the couch. They just think it is transported to another dimension. That's what object permanence is. And in this moment, this woman is suffering from the object permanence of the love of God. I saw it, and now I can't see it, and therefore it doesn't exist. And that's forgivable. Your son just died. You might be caused to wonder. And it's forgivable because, look, you and I are she. Um, we know what it's like to praise God on one hour and the next day uh, wonder, are you even there? Uh, the nation of Israel is liberated from its bondage in Egypt after 400 years as slaves. And within days or weeks, what are they doing? They're grumbling. They're grumbling at the Lord. They were convinced on one moment that he is there to liberate them. And within a few, just a sort of a few moments later, he's out to get us. That's, that's what she's feeling. That's what we feel. That's what we know. It's this, it's this sensibility in us, this immaturity that kind of drops the mentality of, what have you done for me lately? Everything falls apart, and we wonder what we're going to do. And this widow is in despair. And she comes from a people who worship a Canaanite god, Canaanite god named Baal, or Baal, however you want to pronounce it. But she knows just enough about Yahweh to make certain conclusions. There in the passage, you hear her say, is he against me? Has he come after me? She, she has an understanding of God who, who is capable to intervene. She, she knows enough about Yahweh to know that he doesn't have a casual attitude towards sin. And that he will actually orchestrate events in order to bring that sin to our awareness, if only that we might repent of it. She has that understanding. And with that limited understanding of who Yahweh is, based upon whatever she might have heard from Elijah, or whatever she might have heard from the, you know, her residence to the southeast of her, she makes those hasty conclusions. Those are deductions. If you've ever seen the film Calvary, it's a hard film. You should look it up before you see it. But it's about a, um, a man who becomes a Roman Catholic priest later in life. Um, he has been married before. He has a child. His wife has died. His, his daughter is now an adult. But he is now a priest in a small Irish town. And his daughter um, in the film uh, had, um, not so long ago, tried to take her own life. And there's a really poignant scene, among many poignant scenes in the film, where she goes and visits her father in confessional. She goes to confessional. And, and she begins to ask him honestly, as her father and a priest, what, what would have happened to me if I had been successful in my attempt? And they have a certain back and forth after a while, and at some point he says, I know it's an old tired argument, but do you ever think about those you might have left behind? And she says, without skipping a beat, I belong to no one. I belong only to myself. To which he replies, true, false. Yes, it's true. No one owns you. 
you are an individual, you have your autonomy. That's true. But to say that there is no one who loves you, who has no kind of, a kind of claim on you, no, honey. That's false. She knows a few things that are true, but she has missed something fundamentally also, and what she thinks is true is, in fact, false. Um, here's that widow in that moment. Yes, the Lord does not take sin lightly. Yes, there are consequences that can fall, follow from it. But is the Lord out to get you? Man, that's false. And the funny thing is, Elijah like steps in and, and almost begins to advocate from the perspective of the woman. Elijah's the prophet. <laughs> he's, the, he's the one here to represent God. He's the one to clarify, this is who the Lord is, right? But in this moment, the way he prays, it's almost like he thinks, maybe she's right. <laughs> maybe you are out to get her. And so Elijah prays. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Have you come for her? In this moment, I think it's the first thing that we're meant to see. That in Elijah coming to advocate for her, coming to appeal to the Lord on her behalf, yeah, we're supposed to see something in Elijah the author of 1 Kings is out to increase our understanding and our esteem of Elijah's authority, but I think we're mostly sent to, meant to see something about God. Because I think what Elijah represents in this moment is the very heart of God, and here's the first thing we're meant to see. Who is God? Why this Lord? I'll tell you why. Because he's sympathetic to our weakness. She's confused. She's distraught. She knows some true things, but then in her world... And in her moment, she doesn't know how to apply those things in the particular context, and she's a mess. And Elijah has come to appeal to her on her behalf because the Lord is sympathetic to her weakness. He is sympathetic to your weakness. Do you believe that? Or do you think primarily of God as the one who's kind of folded his hands, tapping his toes, going, when are you going to get it together? There's a lot of times in this worship service we will begin with a particular psalm that applies every week. We could do it every week, but I don't do it every week because it's like glazed over. Psalm 103. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That does not sound like an arms folded, toe-tapping the Lord. He is sympathetic to our weakness. He gets it. You and I, we, we know exactly what this woman is like. Because we're her. Because we can be shouting praises one moment, and the next day, hmm, really. It's our condition. We're dust. We're frail. And God knows it, and he is not put off by it. I read this wonderful quote yesterday that I had to include today. I have no slide for it. I know, brace yourself. It's from a, a professor out in 
the great state of Texas. Abilene Christian University, he, his name is Brad East, and he says this, just read St. Paul. He will cure you quickly of the notion that the church consists of satisfactory Christians. It turns out the church is nothing but unsatisfactory Christians. The church has to make room for the unsatisfactory, for the just getting by, the I'm barely paying the bills, the it took all I had to show up this morning, the I'm doing my best, the just give me a break, folks, the Holly Ivy Christians who begrudgingly show up twice a year, the Simon Peters and the Doubting Thomases, the addicts who relapse, the gamblers in debt, the poor and addled who can't quit, the foreclosed on and laid off, the perennially fired and out of work, the ex-cons and the adulterers and the fathers of five kids by three different moms. Is the church not for such as these? Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. He is sympathetic to your weakness. And that's one reason why this Lord we pick. (laughs) There's a second reason, though, that I think we should consider. Not only that is he sympathetic to our weakness, but in the middle of the crisis here in verse 20, um, Elijah, as you heard me say, is out to advocate for this woman. Uh, Things have fallen apart for her, and he's like, (laughs) it was going so well, and nobody doing. And uh, I'm, I'm borrowing an idea here from another commentator named Ralph Davis. I've got to give credit where credit is due. Too much plagiarism in the world. She's got a dead son, and uh, Elijah takes that child up to, like, he's living in the loft. He's, let, you know, he's paying rent, living in the loft. He takes that child up there, and he, and he prays for the child. Why? Because what does Elijah have in his bag of tricks to be of assistance? He's got nothing. Um, He's got no wisdom. He's got no text. He's got nothing. And and Ralph Davis's comment in, in, in the study of this passage is that a lot of us will never become useful to the Lord until we get to a point where we realize, I, I have nothing. Um. Let me put it this way. Sometimes everything you can do is nothing. Sometimes the only thing you can do is nothing. And that's what leads Elijah to do what he does. He prays in verse 21. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. I got nothing. So I guess maybe I'll ask. When in doubt, consult the manual. And until he gets to the point where he knows he has nothing and all he can do is call upon the Lord to be of help, I think that takes us to the second thing that we're meant to see here. Not only is the Lord sympathetic to our weakness, he is responsive to our distress. He is not aloof. He is not far. He is responsive. And look, if we were... If we didn't know how, the, how this man, moment would unfold, we would go, uh, what's the point? But we see how it unfolds, and what we see in that moment is that Elijah has asked, and it turns out that he was more than just spitting in the wind or whistling in the dark. If you know the book of James in the New Testament, you know that Elijah um, is showcased as one who prayed, and he's known, according to James, as a righteous man who prayers availed much. But I don't think that we're so much meant to see Elijah esteemed in this moment, that's certainly part of it. 
mostly we're meant to see that God is responsive. Responsive to our distress. In this moment, he brought the child back from the dead. That's fantastic. And look, when it comes to doctrines about what we believe, you know, we affirmed a whole slew of things there in the Nicene Creed. Those are doctrines. And, you know, but as you read them, you go, okay, maybe I've heard that before, and okay, that's interesting, and yes, I'd love it for somebody to unpack that for me. That's interesting. But when it comes to the doctrine of prayer, uh, there may be no other doctrine that for us can either be a great source of encouragement or a great source of discouragement. Because, you know, sometimes we've prayed and things happen, we, wow, and other times we didn't pray and still things happen, and we're like, this is fantastic. And other times we prayed and nothing happened. And we get confused in that, and we feel a little adrift in that. And we wonder, what are you, what are you going to do? What, what can you do for us? You say you're responsive, and, and surely he was responsive to Elijah, but, but how are we to think about it? And I know that in the moment, um, your faith in that doctrine may feel rather frail. It's fine. Mine does too sometimes. Here's the thing. Jesus, um, who is the, the much later heir apparent of Elijah, he, he knows what Elijah prayed for. He knows what Elijah did. And he knows how it turned out in this moment. But Jesus also knew the prayers of the Psalms. It was his prayer book too. And so, yes, he knows the storyline of Elijah, but he also knows the storyline of Psalm 13, whose first two verses go like this. How long, O Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's a prayer. Apparently what they were seeking, they were not finding. And yet they were still talking. Jesus knows that storyline too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is familiar with an unanswered prayer in a way of speaking. But him being familiar both with Elijah's storyline and also with the psalmist's storyline, Jesus is still the one who is both commanding and commending to us praying. To the point where we have to sort of back up and ask ourselves, what is prayer for? I mean, it was a glorious moment in that moment for Elijah, but not all of us can account for that. Not all of us can share that experience, in which case we're asking ourselves, what is prayer for? Well, look, um, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, I mean, they came to him, they say, hey man, throw us a bone, help me out. How do we pray? Because I don't get it. Um, the first words that Jesus taught them to pray was not, fix this, though that's a legit prayer the first thing he taught them to pray was, Our Father. To know him. To know that he is. To even countenance the possibility that he might be good. And that sometimes he can be against you as an expression of being for you. That the Lord is one whom we might know. Who might end the storm or who might provide you the stability within it. Look, you can ask for all sorts of things, and those, those changes might be miraculous, and, and it would maybe change your life. But if there is no sense 
in which our hearts are more endeared to him, then I don't care what miraculous thing happened to you, if you still reflect the heart like the widow of Zarephath, who one moment is like, praise you, and another moment is like, you're not even there. That's not the heart we want. The heart we want is the courage and the boldness and the moxie to ask him for big things, no doubt. But we want to mostly believe that he's there and that he's good, even in the midst of the storm and the circumstances we cannot change and doesn't seem to be appearing to change at all. That's what verse 4. And he can be as responsive in the moment in which circumstances do not change as he appears to be in the moment in which circumstances do. Miles Wernz, another uh, professor at ACU, he says, prayer is more like schoolwork than like a conversation in that in schoolwork, we're, we're learning to pay attention to an object. We're learning to pay attention to God and not ourselves. And that sounds really simple, uh, but I dare you to take your mind off of you. Try it. Just do a little experiment. You'll find out how difficult it is. You have to have your attention on something else to get it off yourself. And the Lord is inviting us into that communion with him through prayer. And that's his responsiveness to our distress. There's one last thing that we learn in this moment that comes obviously from the outcome. The child is lifeless. Elijah prays for him. Breath is restored. He takes him down to his mother to restore that child to her. And she says in the last verse, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. It's funny, right? Like she knew that before, like she's eating. Remember, the jug of oil never emptied. But now, this cinched it. This fine. Look, (laughs) I'll take it. And so will she. And in that moment, Elijah's life is esteemed. But I think what we're meant to see as a last idea is certainly how the Lord thinks of death what his regard of it is. There's a cute little moment in Dead Poet Society where Professor Keating takes all of his students out for soccer practice. But rather than just um, learn the calisthenics or learn how to kick the ball far or with aim, he makes them read a line of poetry before he has them kick the ball as far as they can. And so Mr. Pitts gets up there and the line he quotes is, Oh, to struggle against great odds, to meet enemies undaunted. And Professor Keating says, Sounds like you're daunted. Say it again like you're undaunted. Oh, to struggle against great odds, to meet enemies undaunted. What do we learn about the Lord in this moment? That he is undaunted by death. Um, to this point in the biblical storyline, no one has ever asked the Lord to restore somebody from the dead. Nobody thought to ask. And Elijah didn't care. <laughs> His his, his prayer requests were not confined by a set of um, parameters arbitrarily chosen. And his heir apparent, Elisha, will learn the same. He didn't think to change it because in his mind, God would not respond with, um, you know, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I'm going to have to read up on that part. <laughs> Maybe I can fix it, but I'll, you know, pause. The Lord didn't say that. He brings him back from the dead. Why? Because God is undaunted by death. If he is the originator of life, <clears throat> why would we think him intimidated by death or that it is somehow like outside of his, oh, can't catch 
That one, center field, sorry, over the wall. Elijah's experience for us is interesting and intriguing. And look, I, I know to hear about a, a kid being brought back from the dead, that's like, it's a wonderful story. But pastor, come on, man. That's a hard sell. There's plenty of people I prayed for that look like it wasn't going to work out and it still didn't work out. So what do I do with that? I understand. Elijah had the moment and the child was restored to them. But again, way down the line, Jesus. Friends, he is the high priest, according to Hebrews, who is able to sympathize with our weakness who was like us in every way, Hebrews tells us, but without sin, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's Jesus. He is the one who commended to us prayer, commanded us to pray, and then showed us what it means to live a life that depended upon it, and then promises to intercede for us on our behalf. He sympathizes with our weakness. He's responsive to our distress. But it's the same Jesus who not only saw him and others rise from the dead through his prayer, but who didn't just accidentally fall into death, but who was one who stepped into death and then emerged from it. He is undaunted by life, and he's undaunted by death. And that's what we call the gospel. Look, when you and I think about death, it's possible that at least once and maybe often, you maybe feel like one of those proverbial moments in all those films where somebody has fallen and they are holding by one hand off the side of a cliff like Frodo. And somebody's telling them not to let go. And when it comes to death, you think, it's beneath me and I hang here, but I won't be able to hang forever and I will fall and I will be beyond the reach of all goodness. I will simply fall and be unrecoverable. If Jesus rose from the dead, then even in your death, you are not beyond reach. Because if he rose, <clears throat> then death does not have the last word. And that's why we worship him. That's why we make ourselves vulnerable to him. That's why we even get on our knees to praise him and to cry to him. And so it's appropriate that we follow the instruction of the bumper sticker to coexist, to respect, to honor, to dignify, but not at the expense of trying to find strength in a hope that has a different set of reasons for why this Lord is worthy of our fullest attention and faithfulness. And friends, believers and unbelievers in this room, I can't prove any of that to you. I can only commend the idea to you and then invite you to use every means of grace God has offered to be its own form of persuasion, including this table. This table is to prove to you or to persuade you that he's sympathetic to our weakness, that he is responsive to our distress, and that he is undaunted by death. And that's why we come here. That's why we call him Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, um, 
We come with empty hands and maybe frazzled minds and uh, maybe uh, divided hearts. <clears throat> but we give thanks that your sympathy is real, not contrived. And now as we come to this table, we ask for your help to offer ourselves to you with all the utmost honesty and to invite those who have never sensed that they had faith in you to confess it to others. So Father, thank you for the table. Help us now to eat and drink worthily of it. In Jesus' name, amen.